This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress. Group racing will command most attention in September, but there are two outstanding showcase country meetings coming up later in the month. On Thursday the 24th, the Lismore Turf Club will present the $75,000 Lismore Cup with three other $50,000 races on the program. On Sunday the 27th, Bathurst Thoroughbred Racing will host the Panorama worth $80,000, $40,000 Bathurst Cup with all other races to carry $30,000. Other country cups coming up in late September are the Manila Cup at Gunnedah, the Gerildery and Grenfell Cups all on the same day, September the 26th, and the Lilypilly Cup at Leeton on Monday the 28th. Kick October off, the Maruya Jockey Club will host the $35,000 Bakemans Bay Cup on Friday the 2nd. New South Wales country racing goes cup crazy in the spring. Like me, you'll be surprised to hear that 18 years have passed since legendary jockey Mick Dittman last rode in a race. He spent his last couple of years riding under contract in Singapore, followed by one short stint in Macau before calling time on his brilliant career at age 50. Rated among the upper echelon of all Australian jockeys of his generation, Mick won 1,700 races, 88 of them at Group 1 level, including a Melbourne Cup, three Golden Slippers and ten Derbies. He had the privilege to ride some of the finest horses of his era with Strawberry Road and Red Anchor at the top of his list of favourites. Throw in five Brisbane Jockeys Premierships, three Sydney titles, an induction into the Australian Racing Hall of Fame and an induction as a legend in the Queensland Sports Hall of Fame and you can see this man reach the pinnacle of his profession. At the end of his riding career, Mick decided to stay on in Asia when offered the role of racing manager for Lim Siar Mong, one of Singapore's most high-profile owners. He's currently stranded on the Gold Coast, awaiting an opportunity to get back to Singapore and has very kindly made the time to join our podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, may I welcome one of the greatest jockeys to grace the Australian turf, the one and only Mick Dittman. Morning, Mick. Hello, John. It's, it's a pleasure to be talking to you too. It's a wonderful rap you gave me to introduction. So, yes, ready to go. Mick, it's all true. <laughs> Thank you, John. Yeah. When do you see yourself getting back to Singapore? Well, the talk at the moment seems to be uh, the new year. They haven't opened up to let the uh, public back on course and, and – uh, Myself as a manager, I wouldn't get even back on the track for track work. So mm. at this stage, I'd say uh, maybe the new year when the when the public gets back into the racing, I'll, I'll get back into my work. You can't be any more a Queenslander than to be born in Rockhampton, where you spent the first 11 years of your life. Now, you were baptised Leonard Ross Dittman. How and when did Mick come into the equation? Well, my father was... Uh, called Leonard, uh, so they used to get us mixed up, so somewhere along the line they gave me the nickname Mick and it just stuck. Mm. So you've had that nickname from a very early age? Yes, I'd say from about age four or five. You still had some time to go on your Singapore contract when you made arrangements to return to Brisbane 
for the 1999 Winter Carnival. Now, a horse reared up with you in the barrier and you sustained a fracture in one foot. What rotten luck. Yes, it was bad luck. I came home for the Winter Carnival and I had a few decent rides and things were going good. Just an unfortunate accident which put me out of business for about three months. Uh, but by the time I got back into Singapore, it was probably, well, probably about four or five months. Right. What, remaining on your contract? Remaining on the contract, yes, John. Mm. Is this when you met Mr Lim? In fact, you got to ride a pretty nice horse that he owned around that time. Yes. Look, he, uh, I was doing some riding for him before I came back to Brisbane. And uh, when I went back uh, to kick off again, I went and saw him. I said, look, you know, have you... You got many horses in work, and he said, "I've got a few." I said, "Look, I'd like to do some riding for you," and that's how we got back together. Mm. Um, and I've had a great association with him. I've been with him near near eighteen, nineteen years now. Yes, that horse we were talking about was named after his daughter, Limbs Eunice. Now you rode to him in a couple of shorter races, and you were adamant he was screaming for a mile. I think you told Mister Lim that. Mister Lim fancies a flatter too, doesn't he? Yes, Johnny's a big punter. Yeah, that is a story. Like when I first met him, he said to me, he said, well, look, Johnny Marr's got a horse there that hasn't had a run yet and he's, uh, he thinks he can win. He said, well, you go and ride him work or ride him in some barrier trials. So I did and uh, had to talk to him, had to talk to Johnny. And the idea was that, you know, for the ideal distance would be a mile for him. So we waited for him. He had a few race starts and mm. in, in uh, shorter races that he couldn't win and he set him up for a mile race at, uh, at Cranji and, Mm. And the day he was ready to go off, he drew the extreme outside barrier 14 from the mile. Mm. I remember Mr. Lim come driving around these big rolls. <laughs> he said to me, Mick, he said he's drawn outside Ellie. He said, oh, we're in trouble. Mm. I said, won't make any difference. I said, I, said, I said, he'll win from anywhere. Yeah. I said, he'll be outside the leader before he goes 50 metres. That's, that's where you were? That's where, well, I didn't ride him. I, another bloke rode him at a lot of weight, but um, mm. he, he just sat outside the leader one by seven lengths. Mm. But he was a good good introduction to uh, to the gambling with the boss, I can tell you. <laughs> I'll say, very timely. <laughs> now, at the expiration of your contract, you decided to make a quick little excursion to Macau, which didn't turn out as well as you'd hoped. Was your last actual race ride in Macau or did you ride again when you got back to Singapore? No, my last ride was in Macau. I went over there and freelanced. I had a three-month contract. Mm. I quite enjoyed it. Look, I didn't get a lot of decent rides. Uh, it was a, a, a bit uh, hit and miss. Rode a few winners. Didn't didn't really enjoy the riding side of it. Didn't I didn't mind living there, mm. but I was happy enough to sort of give it away. And I was getting on to the 50, 50 age. I thought, well, where do I go? Do I go back to Australia? Do I try and get back into Singapore? Do I go somewhere else? Mm. But I pretty much had enough. I'd had a good career. Um, you know, I was starting to slow down as far as the uh, chasing rides was concerned. Mm. So I, I just thought, well, now's the time to sort of give it up. So I just give it away. I rang the boss and I said to him, look, you're looking for a manager. I said, uh, I wouldn't mind coming back. So away he went. He got into the horse business big and I, I set up in Singapore and I've been there ever since. Mm. Gee, you were in the right spot at the right time. Yes, well, uh when I took over the reins of being his manager, he, I think he had about six horses at work, and uh, after about three years, he had 50. So he did go big. Mm. And has he remained at that figure? He's still got big numbers. He's around about the 30, 35, but um, he's, uh, he's had some good teams. 
you know, he's had some good horses, he's won some big races and he's had a lot of luck. He's been a great owner for Singapore, great owner. Now you call the shots on most aspects of his racing involvement. You buy his horses, you sell his horses, you liaise with trainers, but most importantly, you do all of his form analysis. You'd be playing videos all day long. Yes, you never stop, you know. Anybody that does form knows what it's like. It's just it's never ending, you know. You Every time you miss a winner, you you go back over it and you wonder why. You know, you see something that you should have seen the first day, so it's a learning experience. But it's good, you know, it's good for yourself. I, I like to punt a bit. I'm only a small punter, but I like to punt a bit. But the boss is, uh, he's a very serious gambler. Mm. Not so much now because, you know, with the COVID and, and the, uh, the way the racing is at the moment in Singapore, you know, the, the holes aren't that big, so... He can't get on for a lot of money, but he still takes a big interest in gambling. He still likes to bet if they can win, if we're confident, then myself and the, the trainers and the jockeys that are involved, he likes the team to be all together. And if he gets it all in the one bag, everyone's ready to go. He'll, he'll have a lash. He'll get on for what he can. Mm. Many jockeys learn the basics of competitive riding at pony club or in the show ring, but that wasn't the case with young Mick Dittman. Mind you, in the Rockhampton days, you could jump on a pony bareback and somehow steer him without a bridle. So you learned what balance was all about pretty early on. Yes, that's correct. Well, we had ponies uh, next door to where we lived and they, they just uh, used to run around the paddock and we used to jump on them all the time of an afternoon, ride them around with no bridle, kick them around the, around the paddock. We had a ball. That's where I learned to ride. But I loved horses from an early age, John, and, People, because I was so small, people around me used to say, oh, you're going to be a jockey for sure. Mm -hmm. And it always stuck in my mind. So as I got older, you know, around about the 12-year-old age, I I had a stint. I, my parents were living in Westwood, just outside of Rockhampton, little mm -hmm. country town. Mm -hmm. And the publican there had racehorses, and he knew a guy on the Gold Coast called Bill Craft. That's how it happened, yeah. That's how it happened. That's how I got to the Gold Coast and started off, yeah. Mm. What are your memories of days with Bill Craft? Tough. He was tough. <laughs> Old-timed horse trainer. Yes, but, you know, like I'd go through it all again. I can tell you it's a lot, a lot of fun. I made some good friends and some good times and I often thought, you know, when you're in trouble or things weren't going good, you're laying there in, the, in bed of a morning, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning when you woke up, mm. and, gee, you know, where can I go? I wouldn't go home. No, exactly. I stuck it out. I, I was there for a reason. Mm. You spent the second half of your apprenticeship with Pat Duff, who's still going. Where was Pat based at that time? He was based, based in Brisbane. I only spent the last 12 months with him. Mm -hmm. uh, but my dentures were bought out. In those days, you could do that. And, that's, uh, and the owner bought my dentures out from Bill Grass, and I went on to Pat Duff. Uh, pretty much freelance from there on. So, mm. no, I, um, it, was, it, was a, it was a good experience. Pat was good. Another Pat Duff protege, of course, was Jimmy Byrne, who's never been in better form. No, he's riding great at the moment, isn't he? You know, mm. and Michael Pelling was another one. He had a few decent apprentices. Yeah. Well, you sneaked across the border into New South Wales to ride your first winner. Horse's name was Rayburn. And the meeting was at Mawillam Bar in the sugarcane country. Who trained Rayburn? Oh, gee, I couldn't tell you, John. And so that's a long time back. He was trained on the Gold Coast, mm. and I went across there. That and I, had, I think I had two rides in the day, and they were flat out finding the lead to go into the 
the lead bike to make the weight. <laughs> so you'd have been, what, 42, 43? Oh, I'd have been no weight at all. I was so tiny, just a little midget I was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you were very young and very light when you won your first Group 1 on a horse called Knee High, and it was the Doombin Cup of 1972. He had 7-5, and he beat a horse, I think Tommy Smith trained, Rough and Tumble. Yes, I think uh, well, Roy Higgins, I know Roy Higgins rode it. I thought Bart Cummings might have trained it, but I could be wrong. Mm. But yes, I got up and beat Roy Higgins by about a neck. Oh, that, that, was a big, that was a big thrill. That would give you bragging rights. <laughs> yes, I was top dog there for a while. I mean, 1972, Higgins was at the absolute peak of his powers. He certainly was. He's a great jockey. I learned a lot off Roy. You know, he, he wasn't uh, backward and giving some advice, and uh, you know, he was a very clever rider, uh, Roy, and, and very experienced in, in how he handled people. So I learned a lot of him. Mm. Oh, Higgins was a, a wonderful bloke, and he never changed. Mick, at the height of his fame, he was the same bloke he was when he was an apprentice at Deniliquin. Yes, uh, look, I've seen so many of his rides early and later in his career. Great jockey, good thinker, stylish, strong, great jockey, you know. Now, 1973, you won the first of your four Doombin 10,000s. The horse's name was Craigola, and what do you think he carried weight-wise? 46.5. How did you do it? Uh, I didn't have any trouble in those days, John. I was, I was very, very light. I could have rode any weight. Mm. But that was a bit of a fluke getting on that horse, and I wasn't on him in the first place, hmm. but Kerry, Kerry Smith, a jockey here in Queensland, he was booked to ride him and then he got suspended. So hmm. I was lucky enough to fluke the ride. But I often used to used to watch that horse race. He was a he was a horse with brilliant speed and a lot of ability. Hmm. And Colin, Colin O'Neill used to ride him. Hmm. And he used, he used to get on him and he'd rein him up and hold him up. And I used to think, geez, he must be a very naughty horse, this horse, you know. Hmm. I often think to myself, I'd like to get on him and give him a good kick in the guts. <laughs> 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 and you finally did. Was that your yeah, first finally, ride on him, the 10 First 000? ride on him. Finally got the chance. Yeah, went to the bar and he was mucking around about him. Yeah, no, but he did. But yeah, you just stood over him. He just stood over him. I tell you what, he, just, he, never, he never looked back. Just yeah. beat him out of sight. Is it any wonder, any wonder 20 years later they were calling you the enforcer? <laughs> well, those days, yeah. those days I used to like to stand over him. You won the 10,000 again in 1981 on Sovereign Red. You won it in 1985 on Lord Ballina. That was for TJ. And you won it again in 1995 on the local hero, Chief De Beers. Nobody to this day, Mick, knows why he flew at Doombin and couldn't keep up in other places. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a myth, John. Like, I rate him in a lot of his wins. Mm. But most of the most of the wins were at them, but most of his starts were at them. But That's true. I think if you if you look back and see how many starts he had at Eagle Farm or other places, mm. be very few compared to Doombin. But that year that I won the Doombin ten thousand on him, he won by a minute. He started from outside alley and just 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 blew him away mm. as a three year old. Now he went he went to the Stradbroke, and he was one of the favourites, mm. and he drew extreme outside barrier again. Now, Eagle Farm's a very different course to Doombin. It's not that far to the first to, to, to the first corner, like you, and if you get caught wide, you're in trouble. Mm. So I think, look, his run that year in the in the Stradbroke was unbelievable. Yeah, he must have went eight wide the entire distance. 
Mm. And I, I reckon at the furlong he was still almost in front. Yeah. It was, it was a, so he could have won anywhere. It's just that he didn't have the opportunity to go and he didn't draw the alleys at different places to suit him. Mm. But I don't think it was just Doomben. He was one of those horses. He didn't mind a bit of sting out of the ground either. Like mm. Eagle Farm that year may have been a bit hard for him, but he ran a super race that year in Australia, but I can't tell you. Yeah, and a great little racehorse, Mick, wasn't he? Yeah, he wasn't very big, but he was a bit quirky. You know, you just had mm. to know him, but he was a brilliant horse. Boy, he could leave the barrier like a cat. Mm. You know, you had to, be, you just had to be made sure you were ready to go because he just, he'd be out before you knew what was happening. Mm. But he was a great little horse when he was in form, like, gee, he could run. He had died only a few months ago at the Legends Farm in Victoria. I'm sure you would have caught up with that on social media. And um, his death at age 28 uh, created a lot of nostalgia. Yes, well, he spent some time with the police force too, and like uh, mm. he, he was well looked after. He was well cared for. He had a great retirement too. Mm. He had wonderful owners. Like they really lived for that horse. You know, they just every day they're at the stables or at the, at the racetrack when he was racing. They really lived for him. He, he brought so much pleasure to those people. I was just so happy for them. Tommy Smith was a Dittman fan way back then. He put you on a very good old stayer called Igloo to win the 1974 Brisbane Cup. I think that might have been your only Brisbane Cup win. Yes, that's true. That is my Brisbane Cup win. I, I missed one for uh, Bart Cummings. I, I got hurt in the morning of the race. But mm. uh, that is my only Brisbane Cup win. Geez, he was a great horse. He was, a, he was probably at the end of his uh, career too when he won the Brisbane Cup. It was a mm. big win. And he, he was back and wide, and I had to go forward on him coming to the winning post. And he just turned around and swashed up in the fifth place and settled yeah. back in the bed. Yeah, he wasn't <laughs> sound, Mick. I think he had leg problems for most of his career. Yeah, well, I don't think Tommy had him for that long either, did he? Like he was a no, New Zealander. True. That's right. Mm. Now, this could be a sore point. The one famous Queensland race to elude you is the Stradbroke. Is that a source of regret? It is because uh, being a Queenslander, you know, it's one of the main races that, uh, that you want to win. But look, you can't, uh, you know, if it's, if it's not meant to be, it's not meant to be. Like you look at George Moore's career, he never had a Melbourne Cup winner. No, 19 so, you know, goes he had. Yeah, well, it's just, yeah. It, it happens. Yeah. Some people can't ride a slipper winner. You yeah. know, it's just, it's, it's, you know, some people just ride every winner. There's no rule to it. But sure. that just seemed to elude it. You know, had quite a few chances at it. Mm. Won a few placings, John, but never. Never really looked like winning one. Now, you mentioned the Golden Slipper. The first of your three slippers came in 1981. You won on a cult called Full-On Aces for the great trainer Angus Armanasco. That horse really attacked the line, Mick. I think you came between horses in the straight. Yes, he got well back and uh, he, he charged home. He just come through looking for runs. Jeez, he come with a flying run at the finish. Oh, didn't he hit the line? Didn't he? What? Yeah, I tell you what, he was a good horse, that horse. So he went on and won the uh, size produce at Randwick on his ear, and, and he was favourite for the big mile race, and he broke down. But he he would have won the triple crown easy, but it went on. He was a great, great little horse, that horse. You had your first ride on Gurners Lane in the 1982 McKinnon Stakes when second to Axman. He'd won the Caulfield Cup with Brent Thompson on board. He was then unplaced in the Cox Plate. Were you impressed with his McKinnon run? Did you come out of the McKinnon thinking you could win the Melbourne Cup? Yes, certainly thought he had a great chance, uh, John. Like 
he, uh, he, he come out and drew Bad Alley in the cup, but he was a backmarker anyway. And we just decided, look, look, just let him go a bit slow out of the bar and then cross to the fence and try and see if he can get up inside a few. Well, it, mm. it panned out beautiful. But he was a, a very, very good stayer and in, in great form that particular year. Brent Thompson rode him in the Caulfield Cup, but I was booked for him and got suspended. Oh, I should have I should have won the Caulfield and Melbourne Cup on oh, him. He won, won the Caulfield Cup by a minute, didn't he? He comes through on the inside in a wet track. Yes, he did. Mm. Mick, unfairly, the 1982 <laughs> Melbourne Cup isn't remembered as the one that Gurners Lane won. It's remembered as the one that Kingston Town lost. It is, however, remembered as one of your best ever rides. Do you feel satisfaction looking back on it? Yes, you do. Like, your ambition is to win a Melbourne Cup. Every jockey wants to win a Melbourne Cup. It's a great day too, like big crowds and everything, so much hype about it. And I was on a very good chance to race. I think he might have started one of the favourites or the favourite. But he needed luck in running, you know, he, and he got it. I think uh, and I was always on the fence from the time I left the winning post the first time. And he was going forward, making ground around the half mile, sneaking, sneaking, sneaking. If they just keep moving away from the rail, I just kept getting runs. They had to come round one horse, which was Port Carling uh, at the 200 metre mark. And... Uh, there wasn't a lot of time to, to get to the winning post at that stage. Of course, Kingston Town had kicked nicely clear. Mm. I only got him in the last 50 metres. Yep. I only bit him in the neck. That's right. Is it fair to say that you should have won another Melbourne Cup in 1988? You rode an imported horse called Natsky for Jack Denham. You ran second, beaten half a head by Empire Rose. And halfway down the straight, Mick, you got a bump that would have put King Kong on his bum. Yes, yeah, so that was a very disappointing uh, day for me, John. Like, uh, I was disappointed for myself, the horse, the owners, and Jack. Like Jack Denham hadn't won a Melbourne Cup at that stage. He did go on and win one mm. later on, but, gee, he should have won that horse. Like, he, he always used to have feet problem. Mm. I won the Metropolitan on him. He came from a long way back, and then he ran in the Mooney Valley Cup, and he ran big. And then, of course, of, you know, he was one of the best chances in the Melbourne Cup that particular year. He used to get a long way back and used to have to leave him alone, just get him to the outside and he'd produce a big run. Well, I snuck out, got out about 10 wide, coming around the corner and got into the clear. He was just he just put the put the skids on, away he went. He was coming like a rock. He's going to win for sure. Mm. And at the furlong pole, he got interference from inside, not yeah. from outside, from inside. The they current. went bang, 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 come out and, and connected him. Tell you the Probably horse probably. that hit you, he, he was called Ideal Centre Man. I think Michael Clark might have ridden him. Is that right, eh? Yeah. yeah. Just shows you just, well, it was, that was a disappointing day for me. I still thought I'd won, but that mare was so big inside me, she beat me mm. half a head. Oh, my whole body was in front of the jockey on the inside, yeah. my whole body. She had a, a head four feet long, Empire <laughs> Rose. <laughs> and feet she led like, that year. She yeah. had feet like dinner plates, the biggest feet I've yep. ever seen on a thoroughbred horse. Yeah, well, that year she led, John. I don't know whether you remember it, but uh, like probably the best place she could ever have been in a Melbourne Cup was out in front. Because mm. back in behind, she'd get tangled up with horses, things had to go away, yeah. get out when she needed to and get the run when she needed to. Mm. Being out in front, everything left her alone. She kicked clear at the 400 metres and I had to run her down. I was going to. Yeah. And I got interference, so it was a very disappointing day for me. Fortune favoured you in the autumn of 1983 when Strawberry Road's regular rider, Bill Cullen, was suspended after finishing third in the Rawson Stakes at Rose Hill. 
Now, you replaced him in the Rose Hill Guineas, which he won easily, and then it started to rain in Sydney and it did not let up. The track at Randwick on Derby Day, Mick, was bottomless, but he loved it and he won by a big margin with the conditions as bad as we've been led to believe that day. It was certainly wet, John, but I don't think it was as bad as everybody says it was. Like that horse, Jorby Road, could run on, on wood tracks or wet tracks. Mm. I think he was better on wet tracks, but he was very damn good on dry tracks too. He was a great horse. I was chasing that ride on, on Strawberry Road when he first went to Sydney. Mm. Billy Cullen used to ride him and uh, he made a few blues on him. He got beat a few times on him. He used to get back in the field on him and he'd want to pull and you know, the, the pace steady, he'd want to run over the top of things. Big, strong horse. Mm. And finally he got suspended and and, um, and Dougie rang me up. Dougie Bagore rang me up. He said, do you want to ride this horse? He said, oh, absolutely. Because mm. we went to Rose Hill Guinea's first ride and I jumped on him and he went out on the track, jumped over his neck to go to the winner, go to go to the barrier, mm. give him a canter around the barrier. I couldn't pull him up. <laughs> Goodness gee, me. But gee, how strong's this horse? You oh, know, so I had to run him into the outside fence to stop him. Mm. He had a fresh and the barrier after... and I thought Yeah. Yeah, I went to the barrier and I thought, well, I ain't gonna get in behind him too early on this horse. I'll just I'll just see what pans out. Mm. That's how I learned to ride him. I went round the first corner about four wide. Mm. And uh, they all pulled up, nothing wanted to lead. I just let him stride to the lead and he just spat the bit out. Mm. That was the key. That was the key to him, yeah. If he could lead on his own, that was the key. Well, he had a freshen up before heading to the Brisbane Winter Carnival. He was beaten first up in a Group 3. Then he won three straight, a listed, a Group 3, and then the Queensland Derby. He wasn't impressive in that derby, was he? he done a great job to win, John, because... Um, like leading into the race, he was he was probably starting to go off. It was at the end of his tether, mm. and he pulled hard in the derby. He box seated third, fourth on the fence, but oh, he pulled fierce, you know. And I thought, mm. geez, going to tell its toll on him. But mm. he still found enough to get home and win. It was a terrific effort, I'd say. Very mm. good effort to win. Gary Willits rode him at his first two runs in Melbourne, uh, the following preparation for a win and a second. You then took over with a win in a Group Two race then a couple of unplaced runs in the Underwood and the Caulfield Stakes. Now, was that a concern, those two unplaced runs? Were you worried about him? Yes, I was, John. He went into the uh, Cox Plate. You know, the form wasn't great. And uh, he could mix his form a bit, big, strong, stagging, you know, every now and again. He, he needed things to go right. He could get to the barrier and get himself upset, get hot-headed, you know, want to go too hard in his races. Mm. If he got caught wide, he wouldn't settle. But, it, but on his day, when he got things right, he was virtually unbeatable. Great, great amount of ability. I rode him work at Eagle Farm leading into that derby meeting the, when he won the derby as a three-year-old. And he worked on the course proper. And he had a horse in front of him work about a furlong and a furlong quarter, furlong and a half in front of him. Mm. Done roughly the same work. He came around the turn there at Eagle Farm. I reckon he might have been 60 or 70 metres in front of him. Mm. And on the line, he all he wanted to do was beat him. On the line, I reckon he was a length behind him. He must have made up, he absolutely must have made up 20 lengths on him in the straight. Goodness me, yeah. God, he had some ability that horse. He could gallop, I tell you. Yeah, and a will, a fierce determination. Oh, he's a big, strong boy, I tell you. He could, he, he could gallop. He resumed with a third in the Apollo Stakes, followed by three unplaced runs before heading overseas. 
and he finished up with a record of 14 wins and eight placings, and that 14th win was a Group 1 in Germany. He finished up at stud in the United States, and he did a very respectable job. He was good for Mick Dittman, wasn't he? He was, yes. I had a great, great uh, association with him. Uh, John Singleton rang me and and asked me to go to uh, Hollywood Park to ride him in the Breeders' Breeders' Cup, Mm. and... uh, I finished up. I didn't go, but I wish I had a Willie Schumacher rode him, and like he rode him well, a great jockey Willie. But mm. I knew him better than anybody, and he led on him. He got an easy lead, little tight track, yeah. and uh, Willie come, Willie come round the corner, just sitting on him, you know, thinking he was going to go bang, kick yeah. away. But they were all coming from behind him. He should have been gone if he'd known him well as me. He'd have been gone at six hundred, seven hundred on him. They wouldn't mm. have caught him. So a Breeders' Cup should have been added to your CV. Should have been, should have done, but sometimes not meant to be, John. That's right. Well, <laughs> Strawberry Road, Mick, walked out of your life, and who should walk in but a horse called Red Anchor. Now, this remarkable horse had only 14 starts before going amiss. He won nine of them. He ran five placings. He won the first three. In fact, he had his first eight runs for the late Paul Sutherland, winning three of them. Then he went to Tommy Smith, for whom he was unbeaten in six runs. Gary Willits rode him in the Mooney Valley Stakes. You rode him in the other five, and that included the Caulfield Guineas, the Cox Plate and the Victoria Derby, and he beat another three-year-old in the Cox Plate mix, Street Cafe. Yes, he struggled a little bit in the Cox Plate. Uh, He had a very lightweight 48 and a half, but I don't think he was caught on the fence going down the back, John, about midfield and... and, um, I didn't want to be there, so I spent probably the next film and a half trying to push my way out. Mm. And I finally got out there around the half-mile bend, got him into the clear four or five wide and started to go forward on him. So, look, it was a good, it was a good strong win. best part of his win was probably the last furlong. Mm. I think if they'd have went on a bit further, he'd have probably won by a bigger margin. But, mm-hmm. John, he's the only horse I've ever rode that I could ever say, I think he was unbeatable at any distance. He could have won any race. Mm. That's how good he was. He could have won a Lightning down the straight at Flemington, and he could have won a Melbourne Cup. Good heavens. And, uh, so probably the Melbourne Cup would have been easier for him to win than the Lightning, but yeah. because the further he went, the better he got. The better he, got. Mm. he relaxed. He could reserve his energy, had a big sprint, had had a lung capacity like you wouldn't believe, had a, had the best attitude as a racehorse you could ever find, and he had, he had an amazing amount of ability to gallop. If you galloped him with the best – sprinter in the land he just stayed beside him he'd always be going just as good as the, the best sprinter but he galloped him with a maiden horse that could you know run half a mile and 50 he just stayed beside him it was like nothing to him Goodness me. but i got yeah. the first day i ever got on him john was in the uh, up-and-coming stakes at randwick as that's when tommy gave him his first start mm-hmm. and he was going super we thought he could win now this is against horses like inspired just won the the golden slipper mm-hmm. royal troubadour who was a Brilliant sprinter as a three-year-old. Mm. All those horses were in the race. He drew out wide, just sat three and four wide the whole distance, mm. blew, blitzed them, just blew them away. Mm. So you can imagine him in a lightning stakes down the down down a Flemington a thousand metres. They go a hundred mile an hour. He just it, it couldn't hold him slow enough to last fellow. Like he was just a brilliant horse. Mm. Let me pin you down to an answer to this question. Was Red Anchor the best horse you rode anywhere in the world? Yes. 
Yes, he was. I feel Strawberry Road had as much ability as him, but he didn't have the brain like Red Anchor. No. That was the difference. Didn't have the temperament. But Red Anchor was, you know, he was a relaxed, easy-going sort of a horse. And, like, he had a sprint on him like you wouldn't believe. Like, he, he, he could run a race himself, John. Mm. He, you put him in a race and just let him go. He just, he'd just take the runs when they opened up. I think I that happened in the derby, didn't it, in Melbourne? Well, in the derby, I sat back fourth or fifth. There was good pace on. I was about five, six lengths off the leaders going across the half-mile crossing. And I could actually feel him say, come on, we, we're going to go forward, get or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's how he was. He just picked the bit up and started to travel. So I said, okay, you can go. He just strode up outside the leaders like it was nothing. Yeah. I gave him a kick in the guts with about 200 to go and just went, boom, <laughs> five in front. He had a touch of freak about him, didn't he? Oh, he could gallop. And he had a sprint on him too when, when you needed it. Mm. He had a sprint on him. You know, he, he wouldn't just wind into it. No. He could go quick when you wanted him to. He was spelled after winning the Victoria Derby and he wasn't seen again until the following autumn when he won the Apollo Stakes in a canter and then disaster struck. He strained a suspensory ligament and the decision was made to retire him to stud. Sadly, Mick, he had to be euthanised in 2001 after fracturing a foreleg in a paddock accident. He got a few stakes winners, and I remember one of them, Navy Seal, who won an Epsom at Randwick. Mm, yeah, he's quite a good little horse, Navy Seal. Yeah. He didn't really have a good crack at the breeding, breeding side of it, but he was, a, uh, he was a great racehorse, no doubt about that. Mick, I'll just get you to stand by for a moment while we clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with the legendary Mick Dittman after this break. Entries are now open for the 2021 Inglis Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. The Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the Inglis Bloodstock team. My special guest is former champion jockey Mick Dittman. In 1986, a wonderful little grey filly called Bounding Away came into your life. She was bred, owned and trained by Tommy Smith, who was enormously fond of her. In fact, he declined a big offer from the United States during her two-year-old campaign. You rode her in eight of nine wins, which included six group ones. She was a brilliant, natural two-year-old. Yes, she was the apple of Tommy's eye, that's for sure. I trialled her early on at the Canterbury Trials, John, and uh, she, she went out and, you know, won with a leg in the air, and then she went missing. So she must have had a bit of a problem after that. She didn't come back until probably about, oh, I don't know, maybe only six, six seven weeks before the uh, the Blue Diamond in Melbourne. And he ran her first up mm. at Ramwick in a 1,000-metre race, and she hadn't had much work under her belt. Mm. I thought she might struggle, but she won easy. You know, she's just so much natural. But then she went to Melbourne, drew outside barrier in the uh, prelude to the Blue Diamond, and I couldn't go down. I was riding in Sydney on that day. Mm. She won by a minute, Harry White rode her. Yeah. 
then I went down and uh, and rode her in the uh, Blue Diamond, of course. Well, she won the Blue Diamond by about six. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant filly, brilliant filly. Be- best two-year-old I've ever ridden. Oh, that's good. And Mick, she didn't win the slipper by any fancy margin. Uh, just blooming with Mark de Montfort flashed up late, probably got to within half a length of you, but she won nevertheless. Yes, John, it's not easy for us to go down and run in the Blue Diamond and come back from Melbourne and, 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 and sort of keep up for the, for, the, for the Golden Slipper. You know, it, it does take plenty out of them. And I know that she ran the week before the Slipper and the Magic, I think it was Magic Night, mm. and, and she cantered in. She just led and vaulted in. The Slipper was a different kettle of fish. A lot of pressure. She drew reasonably well, you know, and uh, she didn't have the best of runs. Like, she was three wide from the 600 going forward, but she just toughed it out. She just won up in sheer guts, you know. She was better than that, mm. better than that win. She proved that throughout her career. She stretched out eventually to 2,400 metres to win the AJC Oaks, but she wasn't a real stayer. Funny how those top-class fillies can get away with a mile and a half against their own sex. It's happened many times. Yes, many times, and, and those good trainers can do it too. But she had a great temperament in racing. John, you could put her anywhere. She wouldn't pull on a race. She'd just settle down wherever you wanted her. But no, I don't. I think you're right. Like, but certainly 2,400 metres wasn't the best distance, but 1,400 to a mile, she was a very good filly. It was around this time, mid-60s, that a jockey's room scuffle with Peter Cook commanded a lot of press space. Now, Mick, all these years on, 34 years in fact, I've got to ask you this question. Was there a genuine punch landed or was it push and shove? And there was only one punch thrown, John. I was the one that copped it. <laughs> <laughs> right on the on the hooter. Yeah, well, I still had the saddle and gear in my <laughs> yeah, wasn't a fair fight. No, but uh, <laughs> Pete and I were enemies for a long time after that. But, you know, we're mates now. I see a lot of him here mm. on the Gold Coast, so we've got over that silly business. Mm. And who intervened? Uh, Dear old Bob Rolls, more than likely, the, the late Bob Rolls, the jockey's room attendant who broke up more than one during his long career. Absolutely. He's a great bloke, Bob, wasn't he? Like oh, he's, yeah. uh, He was first there, first on the scene. Now, Mick, to talk about every good horse that you rode would take about three days. So I'm just going to pluck a few that were among your favourites. Now, what about this... This filly, this skinny-looking little thing, research. A sour, cantankerous, ill-tempered little tart trained by Clary Connors. But what an engine she had. Nine wins, seven placings, 1.8 million. You rode her in seven of those wins, four group ones. Flight Stakes, Victorian Oaks, AJC Derby and the AJC Oaks. Now, I've got to ask you about the Derby. You took it to the lead early in that race against the Colts and Clary was shell-shocked. <laughs> Did you think of him in the run? <laughs> Not at all, John. <laughs> <laughs> now, you look, the good jockeys, when they're, they're doing their job, you know, they ride the horse to suit the horse or to suit the race. There was no pace in the race. I had no qualms about taking it to the lead, John. You know, they walked. I was of the minds said that, you know, going into the back straight, something would take over and I'd get the run of the race anyway, but it didn't mm. happen. Yeah. And she got an easy lead and, of course, she was too good from. But um, 
I know somebody who was very close to me was near Clary when I took her to the lead in the derby, and uh, he said, if she gets beat, he'll never write another one for me. Oh, he questioned your parentage, <laughs> Mick, I'll guarantee it. He questioned your parentage. Well, well, it wasn't exactly where he wanted to see her. No. You know, the derby and the Oaks were only four days apart, which must have played on your mind to some degree, but it didn't worry you. Tough little thing. Very tough, very tough. She was in a, a, a great vein of form too, John. She like she, she won nicely in the Oaks, and that she didn't really meet a a, a stellar bunch of three year old colts. Mm. Um, so she was in with a great chance, you know. And, and uh, you know, everything went right for her. Mm. She got the money, but she was a good filly. Like you know, when I was riding on her, she was in a great vein of form. Your first ride on Citizen was a winning one in the nineteen ninety BMW. Your second ride on him was a win in the Queen Elizabeth Stakes at Randwick and then a fourth in the Sydney Cup. Now, in the spring of that year, Neville Wilson rode him at his first two starts back in Melbourne for one win and then you took over to run fourth in the Underwood, a win in the Caulfield Stakes and then a win, your only win, in fact, in the famous Caulfield Cup. What do you remember of the Cup? Well, he had a great run in the cup. You know, he, he was he was in great form and he had a beautiful run. Like, everything went according to plan. He just got the run when it suited him, run away and beat him quite easily. But he was trained by a great man, Bob Hoisted. Uh, John, like, gee, he was a great trainer. Had every every good horse, travelled everywhere with good horses, you know. Mm. I had a great association with Bob, you know. That's uh, that's one thing I remember, one thing I really cherished. Is those good old trainers that I rode for, mm. same as Armin Asco, Tommy Smith, Bart Cummings. Riding for those guys, you know, it's it's amazing how much you learn, and 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 to realise even today when you look back on Bart Cummings's record, Tommy Smith's record, geez, they were great, great, great men, weren't they? Great trainers. Mm-hmm. You rode Citizen into second place in the Cox Plate behind Better Loosen Up, and I think you bunged in a protest that day. Yeah, well, Better Loosen Up come around me and, and give me a bit of a knock around the corner, but I wouldn't have beat him. But you got to try, mm. but. Um, I, I think that particular year, like he's, he was one of those horses, Johnny didn't have a great action. And uh, I think Mooney Valley that particular year was quite hard. And he used to get back in his races and he, uh, I probably got him going a bit too early because he wasn't travelling and made a run about four or five furlongs out. So he did, had made a big run, you know, he'd give everything to sit and shot at him. Mm. If I'd have, think I'd have waited on him, he'd have been right in the finish that particular year. I think that, mm. that's one that got away on me. You'd like another crack at it. Certainly would. <laughs> Unlike your second slipper winner, Bounding Away, who scrambled in to win, your third uh, golden slipper winner, Bint Marskay, some years later, absolutely bolted in. You came out of Barrier 14, you just eased your way over. A horse called Moss Rocket flew in front. He put on so much speed that the field just broke up and you finished up one off the fence. She had a leg on them, didn't she, that year? Yeah, she was a brilliant filly as a two-year-old. The, she, she used to want to hang out a bit, John, you know, like she, she was half the time I think she was shin sore. But when she drew outside Ellie in the, uh, in the, in the slip of that particular year, mm-hmm. I wasn't that concerned because I, I knew it would suit her. I think from an inside barrier, if she'd have been a, bit, a little bit slow to go or something, you know, mm-hmm. and you try and ride her from behind, she could over-race and want, want to hang out. Mm-hmm. But from out there, she could do what she wanted to. And it 
worked out perfect. Like she went out the gates like a dart from the outside bar and I, she could have put it anywhere. I could have mm-hmm. let on one one to take over and let it go. She mm-hmm. was brilliant that year winning, you know. She was, she had a lot of ability that Philly, but I don't know if she was ever really sound because she was always had little niggling things or never felt yeah. right, you know, but she was a great filly. Yeah, I've got a feeling, Mick, she had knee problems. She might have had a little chip here and there. Hmm. I wouldn't be surprised, you know, but she says to say, like, she could have been, could have been anything, I think, if she had she been sound. You know, she died only last year in Kentucky at age 28. She'd been yeah. a shy breeder, didn't have too many foals, but she left a stakes winner in Australia and a mm. Group 1 winner in the United States. Good effort. Good effort. I saw uh, or I read where she passed away. It was mm. a very sad old day, wasn't it? You had the nickname the Enforcer for most of your riding career, but you regard that as a misnomer. You told me once that there were other well-known jockeys of the era, and one of them was Greg Hall, who was stronger than you. Yes, many jockeys were stronger with the whip than they, John. Like I was, uh, I only used to use a small whip, and I was, I was more show than anything. Like I, I think the will to win gets you a long way, you know. I think it sort of it sort of flows through the horse sometimes, and you just mm. they want to go for you, they want to try for you. Mm. And I think the busier you are on them, sometimes that the, you know the better they go. You look at these European riders when you know from now until way back, mm. they're all over them, whack whack whack, you know. But they, <laughs> yeah. they they are really, don't they? And yet they yeah. still they, they try those horses. They get the best out of them. They're amazing. They come here. Look yeah. at Lester Pickett. Yeah, he could go whack whack and jump all over him. But by Jesus, what a great jockey he was! They'd mm. Go for him. I was going to save him till a bit later, Lester Pickett. But you've mentioned his name. You've got a huge rap on him, didn't you? Tell me once he's the best jockey you ever saw. I think he is. Like, he proved that, John, because he went all over the world. Like, he, he could come to Australia, he could go to France, he could go to the United States. He ride winners anywhere. Mm. He'd come to Australia and ride four and five winners. He'd go to New Zealand and ride four and five winners. You know, mm. like, very few jockeys can do that. He he was the one and only that I could see do that. You know, mm. he could go over there and have a 20 to 1 chance, win on a 20 to 1 chance, then mm. win on an even money favourite. Mm. But, boy, they, they they used to run for him and he could get the utmost out of them. Mm. Great jockey picket. Now, you, you've made a couple of staggering admissions in this podcast today. The first one wasn't a complete surprise when you say that Red Anchor is the best horse you rode anywhere in the world, but you've also just admitted that um, your busy style of riding was a lot of show. Yes, I believe it was, John. Uh, <laughs> like. Like I, when I used to pull the whip and, and, and get at them, like it was more, was more, ah, you know, and mm. chasing them. And uh, I never used to leave any marks on horses, you know, it's just no. will to win. But um, I know some jockeys that I rode against in those days, boy, if you got hit on the arm or the leg with the whip, yeah. when they were coming at you, you, you knew you were hit, I can tell you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, rarely does a race day go by when we don't read something or hear something about further amendments to the whip rules or the potential banning of the whip, as we're hearing at the moment in Victoria. Now, Mick, we could go on about this all day, but in a nutshell, is there a place in Australian racing for the whip? Absolutely, John. I think that um, it's essential that jockeys carry a whip. 
you know, maybe um, they're getting to the stage where they're limiting, limiting the amount of uh, times you can hit the horse. I have no problem with that. The type of whip you use or the weight of the whip you use, I have no problem with that. But you couldn't ban the whip altogether because there are horses that, that you need the whip to control. Mm. You imagine a horse, that, you know, a young horse that got a fright, first start in the race, and you run off on the first corner. Mm. <clears throat> You've got no whip. What do you do? You've only got a bit in his mouth. At least with the whip, you can slap him down the shoulder or hit him around the tail mm. and straighten him up. You can do something with him. You imagine a horse that, you know, like, that's balking at something, mm. coming up straight and he sees something in front of him and he's balking. Mm. You've got the whip to make him go, to, to put him back online. Yep. I think it would be unsafe to ban the whip altogether. Yep. You'd like to see it retained as a corrective device. That's right. I think that, uh, you know, like where you need it most, when without doubt, like the rules today are you can hit them so many times before the 200 and then only so many times after the 200. But the most important part of the race is where you're winning, and that is the last 100. That's where there's – I think the last 100 should have no no limitation on how many times you hit them because if you can get that extra head out of them, it's a big thing to the owners. It's a big thing to the train, big thing to the jockeys. Mm. And the prize money today is, is huge. Mm. You imagine having to go to the line, and very few jockeys would do this, head and head, head, knowing that you can't hit your horse the last 50 metres. You can't – you've already given him enough. You can't hit him. It costs you a win in the Melbourne Cup. or costs you in the Melbourne Slip. Very well, few jockeys, very few jockeys with the will to win would they'd just throw caution to the wind and do it. Mm. So why not make it the last 200 where there's, you know, there's got to be a limitation. You can't hit them 50 times. Mm. But you can certainly have a pretty free go the last 200 metres of the race. Some years ago, you lost your wonderful wife, Maureen, to cancer after a long battle. She was your childhood sweetheart. She was your best mate and she was the mother of your son, Luke who rates as one of Australia's most improved jockeys. Not only was Maureen the most likeable person you could ever hope to meet, she was a brilliant horse person, Mick, in her own right, and she could get a racehorse ready. Yes, she could. She could train, John. She never used to train many, but always had two or three of her own in work. And gee, she, uh, she had some great results. Horses used to look fantastic. Great care of a horse. Mm. A lot of knowledge. And uh, I think that, um, you know, that was really her whole life, along with me as a, as a, as a husband and a, and a race rider, like that was, that's what she loved. Mm-hmm. But uh, caring for horses and training is something that she really enjoyed and she was very, very good at it, a great woman. Can you ever remember dismounting for one of Maureen's horses and copping a spray? <laughs> she used to give me a spray all the time. Did she? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she was never back and coming forward. Don't worry about it. She'd just tell you what she thought. She'd be so proud to see the way young Luke's going today. Took you two a long time to have Luke, didn't it? Yes. She, she came along after a long time. I think Maureen was four, 42 when she had Luke, which is yeah. uh, fairly old. But, um, you know, we, we, I'd say, tried for about five or six years and couldn't have children, and he'd just come along, Luke the Fluke. That's how I got his name. That's what you called him, yeah. <laughs> Luke I remember you telling me, Luke the Fluke. <laughs> he, he's taller than the average jockey and he's no lightweight, but there's no doubting his passion. Yes, he loves it, John. He uh, he takes after his mother. She, he's, he's her shape. Mm. You know, he's tall and thin. 
but he's he's learned to ride. He he didn't start off with ponies or, or or the career that I had. He just came into it late. He decided one one time, you know, when he was about say fifteen or sixteen, I'd like to ride that. So I sent him off to New Zealand, thinking that he might get a bit sick of it. But no, his passion's been unbelievable, mm. and he's he's come a long way, John. He's uh, he's really got it together now. He's riding as good as I've ever seen him ride. He's now got the position with uh, Chris Waller for stable rider in Queensland, which yeah. uh, you know doesn't give him every ride because he's quite heavy, as you know, fifty six is light as he can go. But mm. he's doing a good job and he's riding very well. I'm very proud of him. You're happily married again to Anna May, who you met in Singapore. And you two are the parents of a daughter, Ali McKenzie, who's 14, and a son, Jackson, who's seven. Are the kids showing any genuine interest in horses? Well, they haven't had much to do with the riding. We live on acreage here on the Gold Coast, but we haven't got horses at the place. But uh, mm. they have had rides. Uh, the girls started off and she had a few rides. Doesn't really enjoy it. But the little fella's got the balance. We've had mm. him on a few ponies and... He's, he's just a natural. He just said, I no no reins, no nothing. He can go around. He just sticks to it. <laughs> he just goes yeah. where it always goes. So he's a natural. Whether he's whether how big he gets, I don't know. But at this stage, he's only tiny, and he's and he's a strong little bloke, and he's he's all go. Plays plays golf, plays tennis, mm-hmm. plays sport. So he's a natural to do something like that. You see where he goes. But now I'm very lucky. I've got a great wife now, and a couple of great kids. Very happy. Yeah, what size are his feet, Mick? That's the best barometer. Yeah, he's only tiny, John. Yeah. He's, he's, a, he's a little buggy, weighs nothing. Yeah. He might be a chance, eh? I'm picking he will be. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what sort of a judge you are. <laughs> okay. Mick, there are so many more horses and horsemen we could talk about, uh, such as all of those winning rides for Jack Denham, on horses like Triskay and Joanne, what a lovely little mare she was. For Lonte, uh, you rode Sir Dapper to three wins for Les Bridge. Mm-hmm. We could go on and on and on. I've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time and I'm delighted we've finally been able to make it happen. Mr Dittman, you were one of the best I ever trained my binoculars on in all my years of race calling and you've left me with a lot of indelible racing memories. Thanks for hosting us on a wonderful trip down memory lane on the podcast. That's very kind of you, John, and it's been a pleasure, and thank you very much. Mick Dittman, our special guest, and this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound. This podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Ingress.